Today is good news, bad news. The bad news is, the sad news is, that this is the end of Isaiah's little apocalypse. And it's one of those sections that's really surprised me in Isaiah. It's been absolute fun. I mean, it's been wonderful going through it, seeing the parallels in Revelation, seeing the parallels elsewhere in Scripture, seeing how Isaiah develops even within these chapters. It's been so much more fruitful than I had anticipated coming into it. Isaiah has just been this gift that keeps giving, from my perspective, just keeps surprising me. Um, the depth, the thoroughness, the, the, the progressive revelation, the harmonizing with the rest of Scripture, not, uh, it harmonizing with what's come before, and also later authors then using it. The whole thing has been brilliant. So it, it's a bit of a sad, it's a bit of a sad thing that tonight we come to the end of chapter 27 and the end of Isaiah's little apocalypse. Um, the good news, however, is that we still have 38 chapters to go. So Isaiah ain't, ain't going to stop giving anytime soon. It's going to keep on going. So, and uh, I, feel, I feel honored and blessed to be able to teach Isaiah. I, I found this book to be life-changing. Just, it's not like it's going to say something about anger or something about pride that I didn't already know, but just seeing the depth and the breadth of Scripture just unfolding week by week is, is to me, so valuable. And I think it changes us. I really do. I think, that, you know, here we are and we end up teaching about the restoration of Israel, the destruction of Israel's enemies, the return of Christ and all of these things. And they're not things that impact our life now. And yet, I believe it does impact our life now, just, just being in the Word, doing this, that we do. So anyway, just a few of my thoughts going in. Let's, um, let's pray uh, and we'll get into tonight's passage. Father, I pray that as we come now again to Isaiah, as we conclude the little apocalypse, bless our time tonight, Lord. May it be fruitful. Uh, may we again be reminded of the truthfulness of your word, and may we see your character shine forth once again. Thank you for the blessings that you've already given us in this book, in this section of this book. And Lord, we anticipate so many more blessings in the 38 chapters to come. But bless us tonight, we pray, and glorify your name through the preaching of your word. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Okay, so we are in the end of chapter 27. Last time, having spent a week dealing with Leviathan the week before that, in verse 1. Last week, we looked at the uh, Song of the Vineyard, part 2, as it were, and we saw the glorious conclusion of that and how God is going to restore Israel. And that really seems to be the theme as we conclude the little apocalypse. We've seen about Christ returning. We've seen the day, well, before, we've seen the day of the Lord. We've seen the judgment that's coming. We've seen God um, establishing his kingdom. We've seen the judgment of humanity and of angels, and we've seen the destruction of Babylon and the enemies of God. And really now we're coming, we've, we've dealt with the, the end of Satan, we've dealt with the restoration of Israel, and that's really similar lines that we end up concluding with. We're picking up this week in verse 7. And, and verse 7 takes us back a little bit, just a little bit, in that it's talking again of the striking of Israel. But it's not like he's just jumping around in time. He's just spoken, remember context, 
about how, uh, let me read to you again verse 6, how we concluded. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots, and fill the whole world with fruit. Now again, so much of Isaiah is poetic. If you, most of your Bibles in the way it's laid out, you'll see it's laid out in the poetic fashion like in the Psalms rather than straight prose. And so we have a lot of that Hebrew poetic parallelism that we're familiar with from the Psalms. Jacob is parallel to Israel, shall take root, parallels shall blossom and put forth shoots. But the result is the same. The result is, is that the whole world will be filled with fruit because of the restoring of Israel. That the restoration of Israel is not simply a blessing for Israel. The restoration of Israel is a blessing for the entire world. The whole world is going to have the fruit that comes from the restoration of Israel. So that's our context going in. And it's in that context, the restoration of Israel, the fruit, the fruit that will come from the restoration of Israel. Remember that word fruit, it's going to become relevant, he's going to link to that in a minute. It is in that context, he says then in verse 7, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? You can see the poetry there, can't you? It's, the, it's the, the striking and the slaying, or the striking and the smiting, if you like. And the question is, is quite frankly this. Is Israel being punished? Has Israel been punished to the degree that the enemies of Israel have been punished? In other words, we see, we see this theme throughout Isaiah. We've seen it, I, I know I've referenced it like 10 plus times. We've seen it again and again and again. That, that Israel is in sin, that God strikes Israel, that God uses the Gentile nations to strike Israel, and then God strikes the Gentile nations for them striking Israel. It's something that if you're going to have a, a logical approach, just makes no sense. It's just one of those things where you see the sovereignty of God and then the responsibility of man just going hand in hand with no contradiction as far as the biblical authors are concerned. That God punishes Israel, he strikes Israel through the striking, through Gentile nations, and then those Gentile nations are struck. So the question, after seeing that so many times and seeing that specifically in Isaiah's little apocalypse, the question is this. Is the striking of other nations the same as the striking of Israel? Is the severity of one the same as the severity of the other? Has God dealt with his chosen people in simply the same way that he's dealt with other nations? And the answer to that question is found in verses 8 and following. And the answer, let me give you a quick spoiler here, is a definitive no. It's not the same. Verse 8 says this, measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. Now measure by measure is a very, it's a very difficult word here. The NIV says by warfare. And it's one of those words, the word measure here, is a word that is very, very rare. And so no one's really that sure what it means. The uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible here talks about by means of warfare. That's why the NIV says by warfare. The, um, the Talmud, Aramaic writings of that day, they, speak, they use this word to speak of, uh, of an, e an ethod, like a, a measurement, um, and therefore the concept of measuring. And, it, and it's kind of hard to know, and I, I certainly don't claim to be sufficiently an, an expert to be able to make a definitive answer on such a thing. But if we take the ESV's translation here, 
measure by measure, then what it's saying is, it's saying that the punishment of God handed out upon Israel is carefully measured. Now the NIV version means that God has meted out this punishment by means of warfare, and that is clearly the case. And you can see how later on in this verse, there is that, again, poetic parallel, where it says, measure by measure, by exile you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath. And you can see how, you know, the context is the other nations and what have you. You can see how that would fit and how that would make sense. Personally, from what I have read, I think that the argument of measure is the slightly stronger argument. Slightly, not hugely, slightly stronger. But I do like the idea of this here. I think it fits better. The idea is that he's asked a question, and the question is, God has just poured out his wrath on the Gentile nations, and he's poured out his wrath on Israel. Is it the same thing? And the answer, I think, is no, because God has carefully measured out the punishment to Israel. He has taken them to a point, but no further. And that's something that Isaiah will repeat later on in this book. This idea of not breaking a bruised reed. This idea of of punishment, but only to a a limit, to a level. And why? Because they're his covenant people. And, And I take solace in that. The people of God, whether it's the Jewish people under covenant, under the Old Testament times, or whether it's us today, partakers of the new covenant, who suffer in, in extraordinary ways. Um, First Peter again and again spoke of this extent of this, the suffering that we go through. And I think it is worth remembering constantly that our sovereign God who loves us, though he might allow us to suffer, that it's always measured. Now it's slightly different here because this is not simply a disciplining of them, it is a punishing of them, it is a contending with them, it is a striking them, it is a, a slaying of them because of their sin. And we are not in that boat because we are not children of wrath. We have been redeemed from the wrath of God. But nonetheless, it's good to know that when God deals with his people, he's in control, that there is a measure, he holds back, he doesn't take us to a point beyond which he wants us to come to. That his sovereign hand holds back everybody. In the same way that when we look in Job chapter 1 and we see God saying to Satan, Hey, have you seen my servant Job? And the same, on the one hand, that should strike the fear of God into us. Hey, demons, have you seen my servant Anthony? It's like, Lord, please, no. I'm sure I'm not good enough for such a thing to happen, but no, please. Like Peter, you know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And you said, you know, that, that's all of that. that. That's scary. But at the same point, there's comfort there, isn't there? That God says... You can do this, but not that. You can go this far, but no further. You have this much power, but no more. That he is always in control. That his hand is always holding back. That his, his love is seen even in the extent of his punishment. And so, the answer to the question of verse 7 is that the Jewish suffering is not the same as the Gentile suffering, and that it is measured. But nonetheless... By exile, you contend with them. You contended with them. In other words, the people have found their, their striking, their slaying by God in the form of exile. Now, understand this very clearly. 
at the time of Isaiah, there is no exile. It hasn't happened. It's never happened. Two exiles subsequently, the exile at the hands of the Babylonians, coming up in the not-too-distant future from this point, and then the exile, far longer and far more serious exile that happens under the hands of the Romans following their rejection of Christ. But neither has happened at this point. And yet he's talking in the past tense. Why? Because it's in that day. It's, it's the day of the Lord. It's, it's at the end. At the end, they will look back and they'll say, we were struck by God. Were we struck the way that the Gentiles were? No, 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 we weren't. But nonetheless, we were struck, and we were struck by being exiled. That was God's methodology of dealing with us. By exile, you contended with them. And then look at this. He removed them, so the removing parallels the exile, with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Now, the east wind has connotations to the book of Job, and we have those winds coming in, they're very strong, powerful, dry winds. But, but more fascinating here is this. Remember in Hebrew the word uh, ruach, terrible pronunciation, just ignore that, pretend I didn't do it. But th that word means wind, but it also means breath, and it also means spirit. In other words, God moved the people of Israel by means of his ruach. That immediately made me think of Mark chapter 1. And the spirit, pneuma, which means wind, spirit, and breath, equally, all three, cast Jesus out into the wilderness. It's a, it's a parallel. The, the, the spirit exiled Israel into, the, into a wilderness of sorts, into, into Babylon, into exile. And Jesus is exiled by the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry. I thought it was a fascinating parallel. That the, the imagery of Isaiah is probably being utilized there by Mark. I confess, when I talk Mark chapter 1, I did not see that. And again, this is the joy of Isaiah. You just keep seeing these details. You keep seeing that the, so much of the New Testament is grounded in this, these doctrines and these truths. So... It was God who, by his spirit, by implication, if not direct statement, his spirit being described here as fierce or rough. In other words, when the Holy Spirit does his work, it's not always pretty and nice. The Holy Spirit is so often associated with God doing great things and God doing things in power. But let's be absolutely abundantly clear. The Holy Spirit is the refining fire and he purifies the people of God. And fire is never a comfortable and cozy thing. We're not talking about sitting around the fireplace with logs on the fire roasting chestnuts at Christmas time. We're talking about going through the fire and being burnt up until all that is left is pure. We're talking about gold being refined in a furnace. There is a fierceness to the Holy Spirit, where he is not just God's spirit, he's God's Holy Spirit. And he demands holiness, and God demands holiness, and he uses his spirit to purify and to make us holy, and to make us what he wants us to be. And so he puts us through all kinds of trials, and testing, and difficulties, and hopelessness, and weariness, and suffering, and sadness, because he loves us. And because he wants us to be better than we are today. He wants us to mature. He wants us to be more like Christ. And so for Israel, 
You look on the surface and you see a nation coming in and destroying them, taking their land, taking their temple, casting them into exile. And you say, you know what, that just looks exactly like what God's doing to other nations. What's even the difference? The difference is this, my friends. That it is the Holy Spirit who is doing his work in the people of God. And boy, does that become clear in the next verse. Therefore, links to the previous verse. Everyone see that? Therefore, by this, by means of this fierce spirit, by means of God exiling them, by means of God contending and smiting and striking and slaying, by means of that, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. Isn't that majestic? You see, what God has promised in the book of Isaiah, right from chapter 1, is that the sin of Israel will be dealt with. And as we came towards the end of chapter 1, and I'm going to read it to you again, because it's such a glorious passage, and I do love it. And the whole point of it being in the beginning of the book is it is foundational. It says in Isaiah 1 and verse 7, Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your very presence foreigners devour your land. It's desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughters of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a, a, like a, like a besieged city. There is just this state of judgment upon them. But then when we come to verse 27, it says this. Zion, no, let's go back a bit further, 24. Therefore, Yahweh, the Lord declares, Adonai declares, Yahweh of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself of my foes. I will turn my hand against you. That's Israel. I'm going to strike you, Israel. And I will smelt away your dross as with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. That's that purifying process that we were talking about. And I will restore your judges at the first, your counselors at the beginning, and afterwards you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice. God will be seen to be just, and in the act of being just and punishing sin, somehow Israel's going to be redeemed. It's just a mystery. And that mystery is clarified, not explained, it's clarified in the person of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he stands in the midst of God's holy presence and goes, I am unclean, I'm done, I'm down, I'm screwed, I'm finished, I'm over, I'm dead. And, and the, the seraphim, the, the beings, the, the, the angelic beings that protected the holiness of God approach him with a coal from the altar. And boy, he's just going to be burnt up and killed because they're there to keep unholy things like him out of the presence of God. And the coal touches his lips. And the man of unclean lips is purified. The God, the just, is satisfied. And yet the people of God are redeemed. This, was, this is here from the beginning. And so in chapter 27, this theme is nothing new to us. This is exactly what God has said. That through the fierce wind, by the harshness of his Holy Spirit, through contending against his people, through bringing judgment upon them, he will ultimately atone for them. Now that's seen in a couple of different ways, clearly. I don't want to get too far from the text. But on the one hand, we're dealing here with the end of times, when all of Israel is redeemed. And through the day of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, we know that two-thirds of Israel are wiped out, a third survive, and those who survive all cry out for Christ to return. They mourn for him whom they have pierced. 
and Jesus returns and the nation is saved. And it's only through the pruning of the nation, the purifying of the nation, the removing of the two-thirds, that the nation is ultimately saved and the sin is removed from their midst. It had to happen that way. But secondly, there was one Jew who stood for all of Israel when he was, went through the fire, suffered at the hands of God to atone for all of his people. And this is the journey that Isaiah is taking us on. He's introduced that man. He's man. He's God. He's a baby born to a virgin. And yet he's mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. And this story is going to develop. Isaiah is taking us on a journey. So here we have the atoning of the sin of Israel. But it has to come through judgment. There's no other way. And this, it says, will be the full fruit of, his, uh, of the removal of his sin. Do you, do you see the word fruit there? You see the connection with last week's sermon? Israel's fruit will fill the whole world. And this is the fruit, the removal of his sin. How does Israel impact the entire world? Because... Israel, through their removal of their sin, brings about a redemption that impacts the entire world. Atonement for sin is dealt with. They being purified makes them this holy nation they were always supposed to be. The kingdom can only happen once that nation has been purified. It is, the fruit comes from the removal of Jacob's sin. And by the way, isn't it interesting that we have the word contending in verse 8. By exile you have contended with them. God has contended, struggled, fought. And the result is fruit to Jacob. Does that not make you think of Genesis and Jacob wrestling with God? Jacob contending, fighting. God's contending with Jacob. And Jacob says, I'm not letting go till I get a blessing. Intertextuality, my friends. That God says, you know what, there's something right about that. That just as Jacob contended with me until he received his blessing, so the nation I will contend with until they get their fruit. That's a direct parallel and I think a very deliberate illusion. At least I hope it is, I haven't seen it in lots of other places, but it seems pretty clear to me. And this is seen in the second half of verse 9. In the end of idolatry, when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. Altars would be made with very strong stone, very strong and valuable stone. But they're going to become like chalk. They're just going to crumble up to pieces. They will be utterly destroyed. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. That's the, the wood in parallel to the stone that has been so central to Isaiah's symbolism since the very first chapters. That these articles, artifacts, images of idolatry will all be crushed and destroyed. And there is so much truth to this in so many ways. On the one hand, obviously, with the final redemption of Israel being spoken of, that is the end of any worship of any God other than Yahweh by Jewish people in history. 
over, done, finished. Sin will never, sin is not completely finished. Sin will still have to be dealt with. Satan is still going to be loosed. There will still be another battle at the end. But sin will never infect Israel ever again. They will be redeemed. They will be holy. And so idolatry will come to an end. But I'm reminded that in another sense as well, with the first exile by the Babylonians into, into Babylon, that really effectively ended idolatry as a problem for Israel. I mean, let's be frank, Israel is still an idolatrous nation in a broad sense. They still are seeking to worship someone other than God. They have rejected the true God who has made God known, Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense, in a broad sense, in which they're idolatrous. But as a nation, they never sat down and worshipped the gods of other nations again once they returned from Babylon. It kind of, in the more literal sense of idolatry, that problem was resolved by exile. And so the, the idolatry was removed by the first exile, and the second exile, ultimately, when all things are wrapped up, will bring to an end all forms of idolatry. Now, then we come to verse 10. And really, there's been two main themes as we go through this, these four chapters of the little apocalypse of Isaiah. There has been the end of Israel and the, the, the restoration of Israel, God's wrapping up of things with Israel and, and what have you. But there's also been a constant repetition of the judging of Babylon. And at this point, when we see the expression fortified city, we, we don't need to be told who or what that is. He's repeated that phrase multiple times in these chapters, and it's been very clear as he's dealt with Babylon going all the way back to chapter 13 and subsequent. We now know who the fortified city is. This is the city of Babylon. And with this restoration of Israel, there is, as he concludes, as we've seen already, there is the judging of Babylon. And as always with Isaiah, we're going to see things he's already told us with a little bit more clarity and a little bit more detail. So let's have a look. Fortified city is solitary, stands alone. It's a habitation, deserted and forsaken. No one is living there. We've already seen in Isaiah that Babylon in the kingdom will stand as a, um, a place of burning and smoke and judgment right through the, the thousand-year kingdom. That, that it will be there as a testament to the judgment of God against them. And so... It is deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. And we've seen constant references to Babylon, going back to the chapters 13 and 14, to Babylon after being judged, being a, like a wilderness and the animals of the wilderness living within them. Why? Because the wilderness animals were always uh, symbolic of demons. And I do believe that there will literally be, will be a prison for demons. Demons that have been cast out of the heavenly realm, they are not allowed back to the heavenly realm. They are kept in a pit, and after the time of tribulation, after the time of the day of the Lord, many of them will be imprisoned in Babylon. It will essentially be a demon prison for the kingdom. And I'm not convinced that when it talks about calves grazing, that that is any sort of demonic reference. I don't see calves being used necessarily that way. Although, of course, there is the golden calf, and it is possible that the calf here grazing could be a reference to demons being there. Maybe it's nudging to that. That was certainly mentioned previously. But I think more literally, there will be no humans inhabiting Babylon. There will just be animals grazing. And it's going to lie down and strip its branches in like 
like the deer that destroy woods and forests by taking off the bark, animals will be, will be grazing there, habiting there, but there will be barely anything for them. And they will, be, they will have to, uh, rather than have lush grass, they're going to have to strip the branches of the trees. When its boughs are dry, they are broken, and women come and make a fire of them. In other words, the only use for Babylon in the kingdom... It's not going to be for, oh, look, there's no land. There's land there and there's nobody living there. That's a good place to grow stuff. No, uh burning wilderness. The only thing that you can actually glean from Babylon during the kingdom that's of any value is firewood. That's, that's how, and notice the ironic reference to it being the fortified city. Do you think this, this is prophecy being spoken of before Babylon even became a mighty nation? And then when Babylon comes in, this mighty nation, this fortified city comes in. And, and you know, at that point, they, you know, the, 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 this nation doesn't really exist in, in, a, in a significant way. When they become mighty, when they come in, and when the exile being referenced here, you know, the first of them comes about by the very hands of Babylon, there is this prophetic reminder that this fortified city will ultimately be a place that is good for nothing but demons animals and firewood while Israel is restored redeemed sin is atoned for and they will be with their God forever and I guys and I need to say this there are difficult times now and there are difficult times ahead but everything that we face now is but a blip but glory is coming and that God will have his way with his people he will have his way with his enemies. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. God will be glorified. In any trial, any tragedy, any heartache that happens now is just a blip in God's great plan. Glory and joy, tearlessness and rejoicing is in our future for all eternity. That would have been a good ending, but we've got a few more verses. <laughs> so, verse 11 and the second half. It says, for this is a people without discernment. Contextually, he's dealing again here with Babylon. People are, uh, are going to come and uh, make fire from Babylon. But there won't be anyone living there, people coming in presumably to get the wood, but the people isn't the people coming in, the people is the people who are there in that fortified city before it falls, they are a people without discernment, that is why it falls. Therefore he who made them will, have, will not have compassion on them, and he who formed them will show them no favour. Do you see how this last, that we, we have a section that's coming to an end here. We've got another couple of verses with, an, with again, with that in that day section coming about. We have an entire section here, began in verse 2, within that day, restoration of Israel. And then right there in the middle of that section, where we picked up tonight, there is this question. Is the way that God deals with the nations the same as the way God deals with Israel? It is a valid question. It's a valid question when you're in the midst of trials, when you're in the midst of exile, when you're in the midst of suffering, when other nations are destroying your city and your temple. It's a valid question. And the final answer is here in this last verse of this section, where it says that the fortified city, that those people who remember, 
Though the destruction at the very end is what he's dealing with, they're the people who are going to come in and do the first exile. It says that God will, though he made them, they're not his people like Israel are. He's not going to have compassion on them. Israel, he's going to show favour to, but he's not going to show favour to them. He made Israel and he chose Israel and he'll do as he wishes with Israel, including judging Israel. But Israel will ultimately receive favour. These people are his people as well, in the sense that he's still sovereign over them. But they won't receive compassion and they won't receive favour and they won't receive grace. They will become a waste, a wasteland. They will be devastation. Why? Because the people are without knowledge, without discernment. They don't know God. They don't have relationship with God. They're not his covenant people. So, does God hammer Israel in the way that he hammers other nations? Are they smitten? Are they struck? Yes and yes. Is it the same then? Absolutely not. Because God will ultimately have favour on them in a way that he will not with other nations. We've got to hear this message, guys. You may suffer in this life like no other, but the favour is coming. The compassion is there for you. And there may be people like that rich man who dies in, along with his neighbour Lazarus in Luke's Gospel. And he has everything that this life has to offer, but at the end there is nothing but flames. No compassion, no favour. As we keep saying, with regards to the false teachers, we don't want our best life now. We want the life that's to come. And we want to suffer for the kingdom now, that the fruit may be greater for all eternity. And then in verse 12, 13, this whole section comes to this glorious end. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. The Euphrates was a large river in the north. The brook of Egypt is down in the south. We are talking about right from the north up beyond Lebanon, right the way down to Egypt today. We're talking about boundaries that are clear, geographical boundaries. And let me just be very, very clear. This is intertextuality linking to the original promises of boundaries given to Abraham in Genesis 15. And these are boundaries that even in the absolute peak of Israel's power, that Israel never had the entirety of the land between these boundaries. Never. They were promised to Abraham and they were never given. Never, never, never. This will be the first time in history. And I've heard so many times people trying to say, well, God promised Abraham the land and he fulfilled that during the time of Joshua or during the time of Solomon. No, he didn't. Just go to your Bible atlases, check out the river Euphrates, check out the brook of Egypt, mark them up, go through your history and you'll see this land has never been fully occupied. And so it will be the first time, but it will happen. Notice how we've gone from poetry to, to just a clear statement at the end here. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, Yahweh will thresh out the grain. The time of harvest has come. And you will be gleaned. 
chaff removed, the fruit taken, and look at how it's going to happen. One by one. Every single one of them. Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved. They will be gleaned one by one. Everyone, all of them, individually, everyone alive at that time will be gleaned. They will be harvested. They will be purified. Oh, people of Israel. Do you know, I've actually had people say to me with regards to Paul saying all Israel will be saved. Saying, oh, that's just symbolic. Where does, you know, it doesn't say that. What's he referring to? I mean, I, I think I mentioned it like 10, 20, 30, 40 times in Isaiah to this point. This, is, this isn't Paul referencing one individual verse. This is Paul in Romans 11 basically speaking a truth that is almost ubiquitous throughout Isaiah. And you can't get much clearer than one by one, O people of Israel. And so, they will all be saved. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is a little tricky, a little tricky. On the one hand, we know that because all of Israel is going to be restored and redeemed, that other nations will come and worship. And we've seen in the oracles to the nations, that specifically the enemies of Israel of, that are Assyria and Egypt, that there will be a remnant, we're specifically told, there will be a remnant from those two nations. We saw that in the earlier chapters. Babylon, fortified city by comparison, there will be no remnant. Moab, Tyre, no, nope. But Assyria and Egypt will have a remnant of believers. So because those two nations are mentioned specifically, because we've already seen that they too have a remnant, it may well be that once God has saved Israel, a trumpet's been blown, and then those who believe come from Assyria and come from Egypt to worship Yahweh at the holy mountain, and the Gentiles worshipping God in the temple of God in Jerusalem is imagery that we saw way back in chapter 2 and chapter 4 um, in Isaiah, foundational stuff. On the other hand, the context has been the restoration and the regathering of Israel, and them coming to the land... And some scholars think that what's going on here is that the Jews are being called from Assyria and the Jews are being called from Egypt to come back to their land. So which is it? I don't know. It's kind of a glorious crescendo ending the entire section. And I feel terrible saying I can't say with absolute certainty what it's even referring to because both of those things are true. I've I pondered it a bit. My best guess, and I just want you to understand it is a guess, I, I don't think we can know for sure, um, but my best guess is that I think this is referring to Gentiles. I, I was tempted to say Israel because it's talking about his lost, and it's talking about those who were driven out, and the driven out is referenced earlier on, that when they go into exile, that they're, that they, you know, they're driven out, they're removed. Um, and certainly there's a link there that Israel's removed from the land and they come back, but I think that this is probably more likely, as it's a crescendo, 
the, the end of all things. The end of the end of the end, the end of the day of the Lord. This is the apocalypse. This is what's going to happen. This is the stuff that's being revealed at the end. And what do we know? Isaiah has been very big on from the beginning that Israel is restored, Israel is redeemed, and that then Israel becomes a light. We've seen in this chapter how Israel, in being saved, provides fruit for the entire world. And then we have two nations that are highlighted here that we've already been told there is a remnant of believers that come from those nations. And when I put all that together, I think the weight is, is nudging towards this idea that this is kind of like an inclusio with the Song of the Vineyard, that this is the fruit of the vineyard. The whole earth is filled with the fruit of faithful Israel. So how does the chapter end? How does this four chapter section end? It ends with Israel being redeemed and then fruit coming in. Fruit that was lost, fruit that was driven away is now being brought in by those people who have been lost and driven away that have already come back. I think that's probably what's being referred to here. And thus God utilizes Israel for the very purpose by w- for which he was originally called and chosen to be a light to the Gentile nations. That God is going to deal with this one nation that they may then be utilized to bring in the other nations. And that will be what will happen in the kingdom. And so here is a pre-exilic Israel being told of a future exile being told of a future mighty nation, but at the same time being told, it's okay. I have it in hand. My purposes will not be thwarted. And again, for us to close on, that is a good thing for us to remember. That though we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil, because God is our sovereign God who loves us. He's in control And he will make all things right in the end. The time of our redemption will come. We are his bride. We are the apple of his eye. And he will rejoice with us and in us and over us. And his purposes will be fulfilled. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this magnificent section of scripture what a joy it's been and i pray that as we press on now to this next section from chapter 28 that you would give us as much riches and as many jewels as we dig away in the coming chapters may you be glorified as always in the teaching of your word but lord may we this night be reminded again that whatever we're going through lord that you are sovereign and you're good and that your purposes will not be thwarted, that all things are in your hand, and that you will glorify yourself both through judgment and through mercy and grace and redemption. Amen.